Scripture reading this morning is taken from John chapter 4, verses 21 through 24. It's on page 941 in the Pew Bibles. Again, it's John 4, 21 through 24. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest again, we welcome you. It is an encouragement to us that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. It is an exciting week that we have planned here within the life of this congregation. You can look around the building and you can see that. You can talk to the children and you can pick up on that. I'm sure throughout the day you'll have the opportunity, but make sure you make the opportunity to pass through and at least look down the educational hall. It is amazing. The uh, decorations that have taken place and the plans that are being made and there are cards, postcards that tell uh, the, about the Vacation Bible School, the who, what, when and where is on the back. They are in the foyer. Be sure you pick those up today. Uh, today would be a great day to take some time this afternoon and go around to some doors and, and talk to some parents and some grandparents and some young people and be sure that they know about the Vacation Bible School and that they have the opportunity through your invitation and through your prayers to be a part of it. We are thankful for each one that has worked so diligently already and for each one that has committed so many hours this week. Uh, do keep in mind the Teen Vacation Bible School is off campus as normal. This year is the first time we've been at the Mount Juliet Middle School in its new location. So be sure and uh, note that if you're 7th through 12th grade, two of the days we'll have Andrew Phillips uh, speaking to our youth buddy Johnson from Cookville will speak on Wednesday and then Brian Manning will speak on Thursday. And so we have a great lineup in that we have wonderful young people. They always support it and make it such a great week. Uh, and then we also have great plans. Be praying about it. Our hope and our prayer is that a lot of seeds are planted deep into hearts that will bring about great results throughout the years and for an eternity. And let's be prayerful about that. Let's be intentional about that. And look forward to tonight. It's always good when you can have homemade ice cream for supper. So we look forward to that and look forward to the time of fellowship uh, that that will offer to us. The Indians came to the chief and said, is it going to be a cold winter? He didn't know the answer to that, but didn't want to show his ignorance. So with confidence, he said, yes, cold winter. And so they went out and they started gathering wood just in a, such a busy fashion. A couple of days later, he got kind of curious about that. And so he, he walked down to a phone booth and called the National Weather Bureau. And, and he said, hey, is it going to be a cold winter? And they said, Yes, it's going to be a very cold winter. And so he rushed back to the Indians and he just reaffirmed it and he even said, you might want to gather wood more quickly and more of it. It's going to be a very cold winter. And oh, they just multiplied their task and they worked day and night just gathering more and more wood. And again, he grew curious. He went back to that phone booth and called the Weather Bureau again. He said, now are you sure it's going to be a very cold winter? They said, no doubt about it. It's probably going to be one of the coldest ones we've had in a while. He said, how do you know that? 
I said, we watch the Indians and they've been gathering wood like crazy. <laughs> now, when you think about standards, it matters what your standard is. Do you realize how many individuals there would be that if you talked about what is right in worship, they would say, I know what's right, and they would go back to what they always saw their parents do, what they always saw wherever they grew up. Or they would feel right because they look at one religious group and compare to another and compare to another. Friends, what if we're a lot like the Indian chief there where we say, oh, I feel confident. Why? Because one generation looks at another generation. Does that make it right? Oh, one group looks to another group. One person looks to another person. Friends, really, what is your standard of worship? Why do you do what you do in worship? When we look back to that text again, I'd like for you to notice the end there in John 4. He says it in both verse 23 and 24, but just notice that last line there in 4. Those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Truth is the standard by which we must seek to do everything in our life. We looked last week of how important it was to worship in spirit, bringing all of ourselves into worship to adore, pour out our adoration to God, and that it's so important that our heart be involved and that we love and we adore God, and then we pour that adoration out to Him. But how do you pour that adoration out to God? How many times do you hear people say, this is what I love in worship? It's so meaningful to me when this happens. Now that doesn't mean that something's right or wrong. What makes something right or wrong is whether or not it is done in truth. Now, the truth is, when we start to evaluate truth more carefully, there's a lot of lies that are actually told about truth. You see, truth is to be accurate. Truth has no error. Truth is absolute. Every time, it is what it is. But we live in a culture that sometimes is described as postmodern, and, and from that postmodern culture comes the thinking that there really isn't any absolute truths. Truth is a floating standard. In, in other words, you can't judge me because what might be right for you may not be right for me. In other words, what might be true for you isn't true for me. And so that's one reason why I don't like Christians. They seem to always judge. And what's interesting is it's not Christians that always judge. Bank tellers judge. Go to the bank and have $43 in your account and ask for a $1,500 withdrawal. What's she going to tell you? He or she's going to tell you, I'm sorry, sir, ma'am, you, you can't withdraw $1,500. You only have $43 in your account. Oh, no, no. That, that may be your truth, but that's not my truth. My truth is I have $1,500. I want to go ahead and withdraw it. You're not going to get $1,500. It doesn't matter how postmodern you are in your thinking. Truth is truth. It's not only true in science. It's true in nature. It's true in our relationship with God and all of the doctrine. That's a beautiful word. Don't ever let that word become negative. The word doctrine means teaching, and it's used as it describes the things of God. God gives us truth. He gives us doctrine, and it is the standard. Now, when we think about this floating, this you know, you, you think about how feeble 
the stance is that there's no absolute truth. There's literally no ground to stand on. What we must do is take those postmodern statements and use them against their self. In other words, it would be silly if I told you none of my parents' children survived. You can use that statement against itself and prove how silly it is. If I stand here today and tell you I cannot speak one word of English, you can take that statement and use against itself. Someone says, there is no absolute truth. Oh, really? Is that an absolute truthful statement? With postmodern thinking, you can always use the statements against itself. Why? Truth is consistent. Lies are not consistent. And please note this before we move on into this lesson. I don't mean this to disrespect anyone here. But it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It's still truth. Pride and arrogance says I'm high and mighty. Pride and arrogance says I get a vote in this. And what we better do is come to the almighty God who is truth and humbly bow ourselves before Him realizing the fact of whether I believe it or not, it's true. In other words, I want you to imagine someone going to the edge of the Grand Canyon and saying, I don't believe in the law of gravity anymore. I've been thinking about that. That's a ridiculous law. He steps off the edge of the Grand Canyon. Because he doesn't believe it, will the law of gravity still be true? You know the answer to that. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine? Just because it's not true, just because he believes it's not true, he steps off and he starts floating up. And other people look around and say, look, there's another guy that doesn't believe in gravity. Think how silly that is. You don't ever see it. Why? Because truth is absolute. So this morning, someone says, well, I, I feel, I feel uh, very um, genuine in the way I want to worship God, so surely God accepts that. No, you're not the standard of truth. You can feel genuinely about something that's wrong. And so it's not acceptable. Well, I just know when I worship in this particular way, I feel very close to God. Your feelings are not the standards of truth. And so that doesn't mean that it's true worship. Well, I tell you, I just worship the way my grandparents worship and the way my parents worship. Well, your grandparents and your parents are not the standard of truth. What I would love and what I would pray is that when we leave here this morning, everybody here is evaluating their life and their worship and asking, why do I worship the way I worship? And are there any changes that I need to make to make sure that I am worshiping God in spirit and in truth? So what is truth? Is it knowable? How important is it? In John the 14th chapter, if you will, John the 14th chapter, we see Jesus introducing us to himself. And there are three descriptions that he uses in John 14 and 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. And so the only way to the Father is through Jesus. Why? He is the truth. Jesus was truth personified. In John the first chapter when we see in verse 14 that he became flesh and dwelt among us, we see that he was full of truth and of grace. 
When we look back in John the 8th chapter, we see what is not true. In John 8, we see Jesus talking to a group of individuals in verse 44. I'd like for you to notice verse 44. He says, You are of your father, the devil, and the desire of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Think how powerful those two passages we just read side by side. Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and life. I can take you to the Father. And here is Jesus saying, now let me introduce you to Satan. All of his ways, everything he says is going to be deceptive. Why? It's going to be a lie. Why? Because all of his resources are of lies. There is no truth in Satan. And so I can either follow Jesus and truth or I can follow Satan and lies. But notice, as he says here of those who are following lies, he says, you are of your father. Every one of us will have a master. We will either have God as our master, truth, and we will, or we will have Satan as our master, the father of lies. Now, in this very same chapter, Back up just a few verses and notice what he says in 31 and 32. In 31 and 32, Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You notice that began with if. If is a little word with a big meaning. If. You abide in my word. Think about that. If you abide in my word, you can be my disciple. And notice the next sentence begins with and because it's tied in to this if you abide in my word. Not only can you be the disciples of Jesus, but you can also know the truth. Oh, there's no absolute truth. Yes, there is. Personified, his name is Jesus Christ. You listen to him and he gives a teaching. He gives a doctrine. Oh, I just don't think anybody can know the truth. Yes, you can know the truth. Jesus, the truth, said that you can know the truth. And not only that, you can be unshackled from the bondage of sin that comes along from the fact of not believing there's a truth or not following the truth that you know that is revealed. As we consider how important it is to know the truth and to know who and what is not truth, I'd like for you to think about the simple teaching. Flip over just a few pages, John 17. In John 17, he gives us, Jesus gives us a beautiful teaching about how truth comes down to us. This is in that long prayer that Jesus prays uh, not long before he would be arrested. And in John 17 and 17, he says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Now, we've talked a whole lot this year about sanctification. And, and what's interesting to me is we've not studied it because we're studying the topic of sanctification. 
early this year, we studied about producing the fruit of the Spirit in our life. And we talked about how we can either live in the world or we can be sanctified, that is set apart to live a holy life. And then recently, we've been studying about the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has such a great impact on the fact that we are offered the opportunity to be sanctified. And now Jesus speaks here and he says, I want you to sanctify yourselves. Well, how do you do that? How do you move from the world to be set apart for God's purpose? Sanctify yourself by the truth. What is the truth? Your word is truth. Jesus is truth. The word that he gave us miraculously, it was called to the remembrance of the apostles. We've studied that just in the last few weeks. They penned that by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They penned it. And now you and I have all truth. How important is that? That's worth everything. We can't live a life of truth. We can't worship in truth if we don't know what truth is. And so what difference does that make in our life? John 17, 17, it sanctifies us. It sets us apart. Back to our text in John the 4th chapter in verse 23 and 24. Not only does it set us apart, but it also gives us the opportunity to worship in a way that God will accept. But man struggles with this. Let's put you and I in that category. We struggle with this. Why? See if if this is an easy transition of thought for you. This is something that really just kind of came falling in this week as I studied this, this idea of truth as it pertains to worship. Truth is always a challenge for us, and if you will be fanning back to Romans, the first chapter. We're going to be looking at that in just a moment, but before we get there, I want you to be thinking about this. The struggle with truth is, truth is a denial of self. In other words, am I ready to say, Lord, not my will be done, but your will be done? Well, let's be honest. Our human nature, our temptation is to say, I want to do it my way. How are you going to live your life? I want to do it my way. What relationships are you going to build or tear down? I want to do it my way. How how generous are you going to be? Are you going to forgive? I want to do it my way. And about everything in life, God says, I want to know if you're going to be mine, follow truth, do it my way, or... Are you going to do it your way? Do you see why it's so hard for some people to worship in truth? Because literally when we worship in truth, we're saying, God, I love you and I want to approach you and I want to pour out my adoration and I'll do it just as you have asked me to do. It doesn't matter if I think it's the most meaningful way to me. It doesn't matter if I think whether or not it it displays my greatest talents or not. Lord, I want your will to be done in my worship. In other words, I want to worship you in truth. In Romans 1, we see the spiral away from God. It begins to be described in detail in verse 21, and it's where they stopped glorifying Him, they stopped being thankful, and their heart became futile, and then their thoughts were dark, their heart was dark. They became fools, but they professed themselves to be wise. And then, I'd like for you to notice, 
how this is described because what ends up happening is they end up moving into idolatry and then in this idolatry state moved completely away from God they end up moving also into homosexuality and it's in the middle of this transition from idolatry to homosexuality in this passage that we have verse 25 and I'd like for you to notice the principle here because maybe there's somebody here that says you know I'm not struggling with idolatry and maybe somebody here is saying I'm not struggling with homosexuality either so there's nothing for me to learn here yes there is the principle of how easy it is to put us before God is revealed here in this passage. Look in verse 25. Who exchanged. Now pause there for a moment. You know what an exchange is. Some of you men as kids, you traded baseball cards. You know what an exchange is. Some of you now, you sell and you buy stock. You know what an exchange is. Here he says, you're going to have something, but you're going to give it up so that you can get something in return. Notice the exchange here. Who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served who? The creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Did you get that? There's an exchange. We have the truth. Where's truth come from? Of God. Truth of God. Exchange it for what? For lies. Why? Because we want to please the creature. That's you and I. We're the creation more than the creator. We want to worship us and our ways more than we want to worship God's way. How many do you believe are in the audience this morning? Well, it depends if you're here to worship in spirit and in truth. If you're here to worship in truth, you understand there's only one in the audience. All of us are participants as we pour out our adoration to the one true and living God. And so he's on the throne high and lifted up. And we approach him to say, God, how do you want us to worship you? You're the master. You're in charge. You speak truth. We will submit to what you ask. In Matthew, the 15th chapter, Jesus addressed individuals that had not learned to live by the truth. But instead, they had been misled by individuals. Now, we're going to pick up and read a verse in just a moment. It's verse 8 and 9 in Matthew 15. Let me tell you briefly what happened right before that. What took place right before this was the revelation of what these people were doing. Uh, this was still under the time period that the Jews were living under the Old Covenant. Jesus had not died on the cross yet. And so the Old Covenant was in effect. And so they would have been living by the Ten Commandments. And the fifth of the Ten Commandments was honor thy father and mother. And they had stopped doing that. And the way they would excuse themselves religiously from not honoring their father and mother is, let's just kind of make up a scenario here that would work in this passage, is somebody to come by and say, hey, you know that your mother and father that lives just down the road, they're really in need of help right now, I think you better go help them. And, and the individual would say, it is Corbin. And that was to say, I've given a gift at the altar on behalf of my parents. And so any responsibility for me to care for them, that's taken care of. I've taken care of that at the altar. And can you imagine Jews that thought of themselves of being so godly and so religious were, were literally watching their parents starve to death or need care and not help them, and they would do it in the name of their religious tradition to say, oh, that's taken care of. We don't have any more responsibility. It's Corbin. 
Jesus sees this hypocrisy where individuals were creating ways in religion that seemed to best serve them. And this is how he explains it as he quotes a prophecy in verse 8 and 9 of Matthew 15. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. Jesus says, if you listen to their lips, they're going to tell you how much they love God. If you look at your heart, you're going to see they don't really love God. God, what do you mean by that? Jesus, what do you mean by that? And he would say, listen, their worship is vain, empty, worthless. I want you to imagine Jesus Christ standing right outside the door this morning. And as you leave here this morning, Jesus stopping you and say, your worship is worthless. It's no good. Can you imagine that? Now, now think how that compares to how many people say, well, I don't really think it matters that much about how we worship or not. The main thing is that we're worshiping God, and, and that's what He's got to be pleased with. Okay, real simple here. Book, chapter, and verse for that. Where's the book, chapter, and verse for? It really doesn't matter how we worship as long as we're worshiping God. I hope you'll come back tonight, because tonight, we're going to look at what the truth is. The truth about true worship. You see, if this sermon would have been preached about 50 years ago, there would have been no need for this morning's lesson. Because there was a time where even though many people didn't agree that they wanted to live the truth, there wasn't the belief that there wasn't a truth. But that's the society we live in. We've got to begin where we are today. Where are we today? We're in a society that literally believes there is not a truth. And what we have to do is look to God's Word to learn. Is there a truth or is there not a truth? And the Lord says to these individuals, in vain you worship me. Why? You've been taking the doctrines that I've given. You've pushed them off to the side. And instead, you've taught the commandments of men and presented them to the people as if it were the doctrines of God. In other words, individuals were honestly being misled. A few verses down from here, he literally says that it's the blind leading the blind, but notice they both end up in a ditch. Friends, I can be honestly misled, but the Lord still holds me accountable. This morning I want to end with a little bit of an illustration that also will be literally where we pick up tonight. If you go to the deli this afternoon and you buy a pound of Virginia baked ham, how do you know you got a pound? Well, eventually you say, well, I, I saw him put it on the scale and it said a pound. Okay, how do you know you got a pound? You go this afternoon and you buy 15 gallons of gas and you pay for it, and you get ready to go. How do you know you got 15 gallons of gas? You go to a fabric store, and you buy a yard of fabric. How do you know that you really bought a yard of fabric? You see, back in 1904, that was the problem in America. We didn't really know. 
You realize that right now today, if you buy a gallon of milk, and it doesn't matter if it's in California or if it's in New York or if it's in Tennessee, it's going to be the same volume of milk. But in 1904, there were at least eight different measurements in the U.S. for a gallon. As a matter of fact, in Brooklyn, New York alone, there were four different measurements that were legal measurements for a foot. And so they realized that merchants were finding the one that was the most dishonest, but yet still legal, if you will, that would benefit them personally. And so the government realized, we're going to have to do something. We have to create a standard if we're going to have a society of integrity. And so they created what in that day and time was the Department of Weights and Measurements. But because technology has become such a part of our world, now it's the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And so now, whenever you buy a gallon of milk, there's literally the largest scientific laboratory in the U.S. is this particular organization. And what they do is they make sure that there is one standard for every measurement. And so now, the federal government checks scales. In 1908, they found out over 50% of the scales in America were wrong. But now, they test them. They take out a standard and they set them on the scales and that store owner has to decide, am I going to argue with the standard or am I going to change my scales so that they will be correct with what the standard is? Listen, my great uncle owned a huge country store. I'm talking about the kind back when you see the movies where you walk in and you could buy anything from a cooking wood stove to fabric to harnesses to milk, blown a sandwich, anything that you need to survive out in the country. Now, ladies, it's not Walmart or, or Macy's, all right? But anything that you need to survive out in the country, it was in there. And I remember... I loved going to that country store. Amanda Dillard, it's her great uncle also. We're third cousins. And, and uh, I remember going to that counter. There was an old yardstick that was screwed to that counter. Been there for generations. My uncle was a man of integrity. But how honest would he have really been if the federal government would have come in where... Bolts of fabric had rolled across that yardstick. Chains had rolled across that yardstick. Ropes had rolled across that yardstick. And they look at that yardstick and they say, Sir, you're being dishonest with your customers. That yardstick is only 35 inches long. Now he could have honestly said, Listen, that yardstick was my mother's yardstick. That yardstick has been used to wait upon thousands of customers. If it's good enough for all those thousands, and if it's good enough for my mother and for my grandmother, I don't care what you say, I'm staying with this yardstick. That's not going to change the truth. This morning, I need to ask myself, am I really concerned when God says what I accept is true worship? Why do we do what we do? 
Tonight, let's come back and evaluate that. But as we sing this song of invitation, I want to encourage you to think about your whole life. Are you living a life of truth? Are you living a life where you are submitting to God in everything? The first place to begin is in the plan of salvation. God's grace is offered. Have I responded to it? Am I a believer that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Am I repentant of sins? Have I confessed before men that He is the Son of God? Have I been baptized into Christ for the remission of my sins? If not, that's the truth. It's not my standard or your standard. It's what we ought to submit to and obey. It's God's standard. If we've left the truth, we need to come back. We need to repent of sins, confess sins, and pray forgiveness. It's not, well, I just feel like if I just start attending church again, that ought to be good enough. Friends, you're not the standard of the truth. God's the one who says, confess your sins and pray for one another. This morning, we're not asking, what do you want to do to feel close to God? This morning, we're asking, are you willing to do what God says to do to be right with God? You won't ever overemphasize obedience in your life. Thank God for His grace because none of us are perfect. But you better thank God for truth because we'd all be lost without it. If we can help you find the truth about the way to live this morning, come as we stand as we sing.